Hi. If you happen to have a Bible with you, would you uh, turn it open to Luke chapter 2? And we'll spend the bulk of our time in there. We were there last week. We've been um, making this journey towards Christmas by investigating prophecies. Old Testament prophecies, New Testament prophecies. Last week we, we put together a combination of the two, examining them from multiple angles, looking at the names of Jesus. In the very first week we looked at Isaiah chapter 9, in which he's called the Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. As I was preparing for this week, I started thinking, I wonder what names of God resonate with you. If you could call out a single name that you think of when you think of Jesus, what would that be? Emmanuel. Well, there's an original one. Score. Okay, the easy one's gone. What about the rest of you? Lord? Lord. Christ. Messiah. Yeah, yeah, King of Kings. Friend? Good. Savior, yeah. My mom liked this one, um, Rose of Sharon. And um, I said that last night, and then somebody asked me in the Q&A thing afterwards, what's that from, what's that mean? And I totally drew a blank, so I had to go to Google. And... um, I'd forgotten, it's, it's from the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, um, where he says, I am the lily of the valley, the rose of Sharon. How many guys here are comfortable calling themselves a lily? Okay. God's good with that. He, he, he uh, is expressing his beauty and comfortable with saying, I'm really beautiful to look at. Uh, I understand why that resonated with my mom, because she loved roses, rose gardens, uh, everything surrounding that. So I, I understand. And many times we, we gravitate towards the names of God that cause us to feel a sense of um, identity. I get that. He's been that to me. So if you've been through a difficult time, you might think of God as your fortress, If you see him as the the reigning king, you might say king of kings or lord of lords. You're going to see a couple names come out today that will, I think, both resonate with you and cause you to be uncomfortable. The the one that will resonate with you will be when we see that he is actually a sanctuary. And when we think of sanctuary, meaning the, the place that we go to for protection, but the one that will make us uncomfortable will be the reality of the one that we live with every day and that he is the dividing line. In this world that we live in, we experience that every single day. So during this series, this promise series, we've been in this for a couple weeks now, it'll culminate on Christmas Eve, we've asked this big question, if, if all these prophecies are laid out there about the coming one, how can we actually know that Jesus is the one? How can we know that He is the one? Well, understand that prophecies are really promises. When God makes a prophecy, He's making a promise or a commitment. So we started two weeks ago by looking in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, when God said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a deliverer. There will be one who will be coming through the seed of women, and that one will be the deliverer. 
we started looking at those prophecies. Then last week, we started putting together the combination of the Old Testament promises and the New Testament reality. And we discovered that God can be very, very, very precise in His prophecies. God can afford to be precise because He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. He sees everything. He knows everything. So He can lay it right out there in great detail. We're going to watch this morning a couple prophecies fulfilled that are actually being fulfilled in your lifetime, things that you are living with today. Here's where we left off at with an old man in the temple by the name of Simeon. And and Simeon, we discovered, was this individual who arrived on the scene when Mary and Joseph arrived in the scene. And verse 28 is where we stopped at when we saw that he took him and scooped him up in his arms and held him and began making statements about him. Now, I remember a time when Lori and I were shopping in a mall when Adam, our oldest, was the youngest. He was just a baby in a stroller, and we were walking through the mall, and people had stopped us to talk to us about Adam and said, wow, what a beautiful baby, and a lady reached into the stroller to pick him up and hold it. Yeah, the moms immediately know, you don't do that. Now, I don't know what Mary and Joseph were feeling at that moment when Simeon scooped him up. But clearly, Simeon believed God's Word, and he saw God's Word. And he scooped him up and said, Yeshua, I see the salvation of God. And began speaking of this one. After watching this conversation with Mary and Joseph unfold that Simeon has, I think you're going to see exactly who the Messiah is, and you'll leave here with no doubts whatsoever in your mind today that he's holding the great I Am, the one who has been promised. So pick it up with me in verse 29 because it says this in Luke chapter 2, "...according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples." a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. According to your word means he's basing everything that he's about to say on the word of God, the same word of God you hold in your laps this morning. Maybe you picked it up out of the pew rack. Maybe you don't own a Bible and you need one. We've got free ones in the back. The same Bible, other than the fact that we have the New Testament today. Simeon didn't have that. He had the complete Old Testament, but not the complete New Testament And so he says, according to your word, in other words, God's promises that are found in your Bible this morning, he begins making these profound insights and understand what he's doing is extremely unusual for a Jew in the temple in the first century to say the things that he's saying here. In in verse 30, we see him saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's holding a baby at that moment. Now there's something really shattering coming up that he's about to say. Here's why. Standard belief among the Jewish people is that they're God's chosen people. And rightly so. The Bible says very clearly that God chose them and called them out as a nation to Himself so that the rest of the world could look at them and say, that's what it looks like for a nation to be dedicated to God, to follow God. So they would be right in saying they they were chosen for that purpose. And they firmly believed that when the Messiah came and arrived that his purpose in coming would be to rescue them, to kick Rome out of the country, to reestablish the throne of David and reign over Israel. They believed and understood all those things. They just got the timing and the sequence out of place. But Simeon's next statement, verse 32, is the shattering part. When he says, A light 
of revelation to the Gentiles. That would be something that would stop them in their tracks. Here's, here's why. Understand that if you're not Jewish this morning, if you were not born of Jewish descent, you are referred to in the Bible as a Gentile. It is not a derogatory term. It's just a title that's given to those who are born of non-Jewish descent. So Gentile is an ethos or an ethnic group. Jews are another ethnic group. So a light of revelation to the Gentiles is something very difficult for the Jews to digest. Here's why. Gentiles brought death and destruction to the Jewish people. Gentiles are the reason that they went into captivity under Pharaoh and served as slaves for 400 years. Gentiles are the reasons that idolatry came into the camp of Israel. Gentiles are the reasons that they were led off into Babylonian captivity. Gentiles are the reason they were massacred, enslaved, pounded down for centuries, beaten and massacred. So maybe it's easier to get it in your mind if you begin thinking 2014, what would it be like for Simeon to scoop up that baby and say, Yeshua, my eyes have seen your salvation. A light to Isis begins to resonate, doesn't it? Someone who has been an enemy against your nation is now being declared a people group whom Messiah has come for. See, if you just let the enemies of your nation pop in your mind, those who come against your ethnic group, you would begin to resonate with what the first century Jews would be thinking. A light of revelation to our enemy? Wait, do you realize what these have done to us? Do you know who they are? But in that same breath, you and I would have to check ourselves. We would have to check ourselves because we know who we were at one time, alienated from God, living in a land of darkness before the veil was taken away. So for Simeon to make this declaration that he's come for a light of revelation to the Gentiles, literally saying he's come for the whole world to take the covering away. We talked about this briefly last week, 2 Corinthians 3.16. Whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, meaning they're no longer in the darkness. So Simeon's being really clear here. His eyes have seen God's salvation. Yeshua is just a baby, barely 40 days old. How can Simeon possibly know what God's plan is before the life of this one has been lived out? Well, we've been told the Holy Spirit's upon him. He knows God's word very clearly. He's an aged man. He's been meticulously waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And he begins echoing the Old Testament. Matter of fact, what you are seeing going on here is him quoting Psalm 98. Verse 2, look with me on the screen. Psalm 98, 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations, not just nation Israel, nations plural, the entire world. This comes to everyone. So that's why Mary and Joseph were shocked. Verse 33, his mom and dad were amazed. It says this, and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. This pronouncement is something they didn't see coming. In spite of what they already know, they're marveling again and again and again. Why? This is the first time they've ever heard about the destiny of Jesus. And the shock of it is, this stranger with this position of learning obviously possesses deep insight. 
So shock number one for them, he's the Savior of the Gentiles. Shock number two, you're about to see the world as we know it is going to be divided over this one. Mary and Joseph have been told he's the Messiah. They have not comprehended the scope of this. The entire planet will be confronted with a choice because of this one. So Simeon at this point stops praising and he starts prophesying. Go with me to that. It's verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So he's blessing them. At the same time, he's preparing them because he's about to launch into truth and a truth that many still today are not willing to hear. Now, first of all, notice this word appointed. He's saying because of this one who's been not randomly selected but appointed, the world will be brought to a point of decision. You're going to get four Greek words this morning, and I haven't given you four Greek words in a long time, so just deal with it, okay? And and the first one coming up is the word appointed. You'll actually be able to track the progression of this teaching by these Greek words that are going to come at you really, really quickly. This first one, literally appointed, has a literal and a figurative meaning to it. The literal side of it is one who is outstretched, and immediately my mind goes to Jesus on the cross. One who is going to be put on display for the world. But the figurative side of it is he's been selected or appointed, determined to carry this out. For what purpose? Verse 34, for the fall and the rise of many. Now he goes on to say in Israel, and I'll come back to that in just a minute, but let's deal with this concept of the fall and rise first. This concept of tripping and stumbling over Jesus means he's there, you got to do something with it. you got to land on one side or the other. My experience is this. People respond to Jesus in one of two ways. They either trip over the reality of who Jesus is and decide, <laughs> not interested, or they surrender to the reality of who Jesus is. One of two camps. We've been told prophecy reveals God's purposes. Now, this child is barely a month old, and we're being told right here he is the dividing line. So let's deal with this phrase, the fall. What's being referred to here? The fall in verse 34 is the second Greek word I'm going to give you. It's the word tosis. If you live in the medical world, you understand this is a word that's used in the medical world, especially for eyesight issues. But this word tosis has to do with a crash or a downfall, a falling. In the, in the biblical language, it literally means an irretrievable fall. So what is Simeon referring to here? He's saying some are going to come to the point of collapse. They're going to come to who Jesus is and arrive at the conclusion, no way, I don't want that. Not interested. Thank you very much. Paul understood that that would be the reaction among Jews and Gentiles, that people would stumble. Matter of fact, this is what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The, the method by which Jesus died is prophecy. Did you know that? If you're new to church, you wouldn't have known that. 
Even the way that Jesus was killed and executed is prophesied in Scripture. And the manner of his death, Christ crucified, became a stumbling block to the Jews. Let me show you a couple passages so you put this prophecy together and understand this promise of God. When he said, this one has been appointed to be put on display, look what Isaiah says. Isaiah 53, 5. The Messiah will be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Literally, the stripes of being beat, of being whipped. Now, if that one's not enough for you, go to this next prophecy from Psalm 22. King David wrote this. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Written 900 years before Jesus was ever crucified. Does that look like a description of a crucifixion? Here's the amazing thing. David wrote that 500 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Romans. How could he know that? How is it possible Because our God knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. Nothing is a mystery to him. So when the Holy Spirit moved David to write those things down, 900 years before Jesus, 500 years before the Romans even invented crucifixion, he's saying there's going to be a promise, a fulfillment of the promise. And that fulfillment became a massive stumbling block to the Jews. That's why Paul said, a stumbling block. To God's people because their expectation was Messiah would come and rule and reign and kick Rome out and set up David's throne. How could Messiah be killed? And the outcome of that killing, the resurrection, is foolishness to the Gentile world. Matter of fact, let me take you to Mars Hill, the center of Greek thinking, the Oropagus where Paul found himself talking with the intellectuals of the day. And at Mars Hill, he engaged in this particular conversation you find in Acts chapter 17. It says this in verse 30, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. How do you think the Gentile world responded to Paul declaring that? They laughed him out of the auditorium. Matter of fact, look with me at the very next verse, verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, mock, ridicule. You had me, Paul. You had me right up to the point where you're talking about resurrection. Are you kidding me? You actually buy into that? And they began laughing and sneering. The reality, church, is the death on the cross was the defeat of death, and it leads to our resurrection. One day, we will be resurrected. So that's why Simeon said the fall of many and the rise of many. The rise is actually the word anastasis. Here's your third Greek word. What to one side of the dividing line is a stumbling block. To the other side is the rise of many. Anastasis is a literal Greek word for a resurrection from death. This is used repeatedly throughout Scripture. As a matter of fact, if you ever wanted to write a Greek word down in your Bible when you're studying it, I would take the word anastasis because it's a very specific meaning, meaning it can't have any other purpose to it other than one who is resurrected to life again. 
Paul used it in Romans 6. It says this, So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's a promise to you. You're going to be resurrected one day. Jesus said that was the purpose of his coming. What did he say in John 11? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. This this is the truth of Scripture. So we come to this defined dividing line and recognize it's not just that people will be divided over him, that there will be separation, but there will be opposition, intense opposition. Verse 34 goes on to say, a sign to be opposed and to the end that the thoughts of hearts of many will be revealed. See, this is the result you're living with today. 2014, December 21st, you're going to leave the quiet sanctuary of this auditorium, and you're going to go out into a world in which you're going to find people who, if you, if you haven't found yet, are very much not only separated by Jesus, but opposed to him. This is the result we live with every day. Now, perhaps you've never thought of this before, But one of the evidences, one of the prophecies of Scripture confirming who Jesus is, is his rejection. We're told that this one is going to determine the destiny of everyone. And that the fall of rise and and, and the fall and the rise of many will be determined by his life. Simeon certainly understood God's word. He, He hemmed together all these pieces. I want you to see another quote from Isaiah in which he understood exactly what Jesus was going to bring. Look at Isaiah 8. And he, Messiah, will become a sanctuary. That's for some who have declared Jesus as their Savior. And to others, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. To both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. The amazing thing to me is, right there in the center of learning, in Jerusalem, the holy city where they should have known better, there's going to be stumbling and falling to the point where Jesus would be despised and rejected. Go with me on the screen to this old prophecy. He will be despised, Isaiah 53.3, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. That's really consistent with John 1.11. Fast forward to the New Testament. He came to his own, and his own said, I am not interested. I don't have any use for this. And they rejected him. Uh, here's the really intriguing thing. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, the hearts of men towards God was really hard to detect because there's so much ceremony, so much ritualism. People could carry out the codes of the law. They could carry out the sacrificial system, and it put a mask over their heart. You couldn't really tell who's all in and who's not because they're just going through the motions. Jesus arrives on the scene, and he rips the mask off everyone's heart. Whether or not you're for God or against God is really, really clear. You're either moving toward him or moving away. Here's an example for you. The Pharisees wanted to be considered righteous and close to God by everyone. Jesus called them out. Matter of fact, because he called them out, I'll call them out. 
These are a group of individuals who appeared righteous wearing long robes, standing on the street corners, praying very, very loudly for all the people to see. But yet Jesus had really hard things to say about what's going on inside. Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Jesus is making still the same discovery today. Just think in your world. If you are in a social setting in the next week, before bringing up the gospel, we're all good. We can talk about sports. We can talk about finances. We can talk about raising children. We can even talk about the mortgages on our house. But drop the Jesus bomb into the conversation. Boom. The gloves come off, right? In the social setting, when the gospel is brought up, people begin to indicate where their heart is really at. You might think, and it's very tempting to say, I wish I lived in a period of time when that wasn't so. Maybe I should have been born in the 1800s. I haven't quoted Charles Simeon in a long time, but let me take you back to 1834. Charles Simeon said this, when he, meaning Jesus, is set forth, discord and division ensue, then the indifferent discover a readiness to persecute. You think not? Let me ask you to do this, just a very simple exercise. Name for me one other world leader who has ever had their name turned into a swear word. Can't do it, can you? Name a religious leader whose name has become profanity. Try this on. Oh, Buddha. Doesn't feel right, does it? Oh, Gandhi. Okay, we just don't do it. Try this. Oh, Muhammad. Woo. Okay? There's places we don't go, but this is received. Jesus Christ! Amazing. The same name that can be praised and exalted can be used for profanity and for expression of grief and anger. Why? The world is opposed. The world stands against. So we're told in verse 34, he is assigned to be opposed. So here's what Mary and Joseph are hearing at this point. There's going to be rejection. It's going to be ugly. There's going to be hatred. And in itself, this is going to produce a sign. So here's your fourth Greek word this morning. It wasn't too painful, right? Here's the fourth one. It's sign, literally, in this case, in the way that he's using it, is miracle. Something that is wondrous. Not in a good way necessarily. The sign is this. They're going to reject Him. They're going to totally oppose Him violently. Some people will even want to set up satanic displays on your Capitol lawn, Lansing, Michigan. What explains that? The world comes to a point of friction because Jesus is the dividing line. You watch the activity of Jesus throughout Scripture, what happens? The entire nation turns against Him to the point where the ones that they wanted booted out of their country, Rome, actually become conspirators with them in putting Him to death. 
How could that not be a sign? He pays the ultimate cost as the one who himself is the sign. The crucifixion is the ultimate sign. It is an absolutely amazing sign. Just think this through. The long-awaited one. You've been learning over the last two weeks all these prophecies. People had waited thousands of years for him to arrive. The fulfillment of all of God's purposes. This one who came, who met every Old Testament promise, will be rejected. Put your mind in that vein. What are you saying, Mark? You're saying that all the Old Testament hope is brought forward? All the promises come together. He fulfills everything that God said that would show him as the Savior, only to see people walk away. No way. I don't want that. Absolutely, that's what Scripture is saying. Why? Verse 35 answers it. That the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Thoughts is used eight times in the New Testament, and it always represents beliefs. So you could say it this way that the belief of many, everyone, will be revealed. What Simeon has just done for us has described in detail how the world will respond to the gospel. 30 years before Jesus was ever killed and resurrected, long before our generation. See, you can know this morning that he is the one. You can know Jesus is the one by the antagonistic opposition Why? Lots of whys this morning. Because God says very clearly that those who live in darkness, they love it. You didn't think that's what I was going to say, did you? That those who live in darkness have seen a great light. That's where our mind goes at Christmas time. Scripture says those who live in darkness love it. They prefer it. Jesus said it this way, John 3.19, this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light. That's why I can say to you today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, praise God, New Hope. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there is an amazing reason for it. It's called grace. If you're looking for the cheery part of this teaching, this is it. Okay, This is the happy part. If you're a follower of Jesus, Praise God. Today, if you believe in the intentional crucifixion and the resurrection of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and his soon return, you are a follower of Jesus. It is the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus that changes everything. For many, many, many people around the world, that is the stumbling block. And it keeps them from eternal life with the Father. That's why Paul said, for the Jews, a stumbling block to the Greeks, foolishness. So the best gift you can give this week, regardless of all the things you bought that you think are really, really good, you have a family member, a friend, here's the best gift. You can have a conversation in which you ask this question. Who is Jesus? I know it's going to set off a grenade in the room. But the reality is that conversation always leads to something in which an individual has to deal with the question. You hear it, and you have to make a choice. There is no neutral ground whatsoever with Jesus. He polarizes everyone. 
Just think this through. One Pharisee says, he does his miracles by the work of Satan. Another Pharisee says, he's the son of God. One angel rebels against him and screams in rebellion. Another holy angel bows at his feet. One thief on the cross blasphemes him with his last dying breath. Another thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Judas fails. Peter repents. It's a complete dividing line. Jesus polarizes everyone. He's like this giant magnet around which all the world rotates, repelling some and drawing others, repelling and drawing. Jesus said it himself, Luke eleven twenty three: he who is not with me is against me. A house divided against itself cannot stand. You've got to be on one side or the other. So I'm not going to let you out of here this morning without using these last three words that Simeon included. He used this interesting phrase, to the end. To the end that many hearts would be revealed. What he's talking about here are eternal purposes, meaning everyone's going to be brought to a point of decision. Some to a point of falling, the collapse, others to a resurrection. Now here's the temptation, and it's very sticky. Many people, some will come into our auditorium over the next week because of Christmas. Christmas will draw individuals who otherwise wouldn't find themselves necessarily in a church. Here's the temptation. When people think of a Messiah, they tend to fall into the pattern that first century Judaism fell into looking for one who is going to come and fix everything on planet Earth right now. And so the temptation is to think, oh, I, I thought a Messiah meant there'd be like happy thoughts and everybody would be glad and there'd be butterflies trailing out of him and moon dust in his hair. That's the Jesus the world wants. The reality of Scripture is Jesus walked head first into our dark world and he called out our dark behavior, and he calls it what it is, and he brought sin to the forefront, and the world hates him for it. That Jesus surfaces the condition of our heart. I read of a man who paid for his friend to go into the Louvre with him in Paris. They, they were in, if you don't know the Louvre, it's an art museum in Paris. It's one of the world's foremost art museums, and he paid the admission price for his friend. They, they walked through the Louvre, spent hours in there, got to the end of the displays and decided the day was spent. And so they began to leave. His friend hadn't said much while they were walking through. So the man who paid for the price of the admission turned to his friend and said, I didn't hear much from you while we were walking through the Louvre. What did you think? And his friend said, I just wasn't all that impressed. The man who paid for the admission said to him, well, if it's any consolation to you, the artwork in the museum was not on trial. The greatness of the art within that building has already been declared by history. Rather, what you're really demonstrating is a lack of appreciation in your own heart. The, the truth, church, this morning is Jesus is not on trial. Although the world may cause you to feel this morning as though he is, Jesus is the sign by which hearts are revealed. He's not on trial. He's raised up as a sign. And the actual evidence is the content of every man's heart is revealed 
in Jesus based on which side of the line you fall on. That's how I would like you to enter into prayer this week as you think of those coming to New Hope on Christmas Eve, that God will be drawing people to himself, and the potential is that there will be individuals who will hear the gospel message for the first time, and God will prick their heart, and they will begin that journey towards him. So I would ask you as a body of believers, as New Hope family, that you would be praying over these next few days leading up to Christmas Eve. But for us this morning, what what have we gained from this? What do we take out the door other than the things that you've already written down in your notes? Well, first of all, we've seen again, this first coming, Jesus meets all the criteria fully, all the characteristics of God's deliverer. And, And the first coming also reveals the hearts of mankind. We either rise or fall by the means of the truth that you've heard this morning. And here's the big one. Those who reject Jesus are are really rejecting God's eternal purpose. God's plan is rejected when individuals reject Jesus. So let's pray against individuals rejecting Jesus, but rather that they would receive him. Even if it's an enemy that all the world would know the name of Jesus, not as a profane word, but as Lord and King. Would you pray with me that way? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you as individuals freshly immersed in your word and grateful that your truth just leaks off the pages. Father, there's so much depth in what you have to communicate to us. We just ask that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to process all that we have studied. And I ask for your blessing upon these people who have taken this time to look and examine your word and thoroughly investigate and understand that they might be strengthened in their own walk. Send them out with your blessing. Father, we also pray for individuals who you'll be drawing to yourself this week, those who need to name the name of Jesus not in profane ways, but as Lord and King. Father, we would ask that you would release the power of your Holy Spirit in this place and that you would draw men and women and children to yourself. Continue to expand your kingdom through the work of new hope. We would ask this in confidence, knowing that that is your desire. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.